This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, David Yurth from Nova Institute of Technology, way out there in Salt Lake City, will uh, jump in here on the conversation in just a moment. David's been on the show before. He's the inventor of a, a device uh, that removes carbon dioxide and, and most other noxious fumes from car exhaust, and this is not pie in the sky. They have proof of concept. It works. Uh, not only car engines, but you could uh, retrofit one of these devices uh, on a coal-fired uh, plant, diesel, uh, any internal combustion engine on the planet, you name it. It's, um, it's really disruptive technology, folks, so hold on to your hats. And he's got new, uh, some new developments as well on that front. Uh, imagine, though, a burning fossil fuel with impunity. Uh, so there, there is such a thing as clean coal. We're not talking about sequestering the carbon dioxide either because that is expensive. We're talking about eliminating CO2 from the exhaust. Uh, all right. Um, Albert Wenzel, my story producer, is off for the next several weeks. Not sure where he is. Albert is a very mysterious, secretive young man, and I think he may be a spy. <laughs> uh, that said, uh, there is no hangout on air tonight. No hangout on air for the next several weeks, actually. Uh, but we will get the HOAs going again around the fourth week of July. And thanks to all of you who catch us on the live stream on YouTube. I appreciate it. Uh, Ian is also off the next couple of weeks. He and his rockabilly band are on tour. Uh, so we have the very capable young Jamie on the board for the next uh, several weeks. Please uh, get on up to the website, strangeplanet.ca. That's the landing page. And from there, you can check out the radio page for this very program, The Conspiracy Show. Uh, the radio page has all sorts of, of great information about this program, including this week's show info, links to our guests' websites, and so forth. And you can become a member 
uh, by clicking on that blue member button on the left-hand side. It's uh, Registration is fast, it's easy, free. It gains you access to uh, member-only areas of the website like past show info, the audio archives going back to the, the summer of 2012, the book club, and so forth. Uh, also the radio, uh, the, the TV page, rather. Uh, and we now are in the midst of season four of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Season four airs Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. Uh, in the U.S., you can catch seasons one through three on Hulu, Amazon.com. Uh, I also want to direct you very quickly to the live events page on the website, strangeplanet.ca. A conspiracy Culture, our good friends Patrick and Kadina and I, uh, Strange Planet Productions, uh, are partnering on two live events this fall. One on Sunday, September the 11th, uh, with Dr. Judy Wood, author of Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11. And that's going to be at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium at the University of Toronto. Uh, you can go to the live events page, once again, at strangeplanet.ca for more info. And you can order tickets online right there as well. Or you can go to conspiracyculture.com. Conspiracyculture.com and the events page there to order online. Or you can go to the, uh, the store uh, and, and buy the tickets in store. 1344 Bloor Street West. Uh, all right. Several weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump delivered his energy policy speech in North Dakota. He talked about making the United States energy independent. He talked about bringing back jobs in the coal sector. He talked about ripping up the Paris Accord on climate change. And he was roundly criticized uh, for that speech, not only for the sort of the general thrust of it, you know, bringing coal mining jobs back and, 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 and so forth, uh, but he was also criticized for lack of specifics. But it is, as we're about to learn, it is possible to have clean coal. It is possible for America to pursue an energy policy centered around fossil fuels, at least in the interim, until, uh, you know, something else comes along that packs the same punch as uh, hydrocarbons. Uh, for every problem, there is an innovation and a, te a technology that can provide solutions, and we're going to talk about that right now. David Yurth's professional focus for 50 years has been in the field of technology development, invention, management, and system integration. He's served as chief scientist, managing partner, founder, director, and CEO of numerous companies. He's currently working as director of science and technology for the Nova Institute of Technology. His ex experience is heavily weighted in industry and networking, technology analytics research, and prototype development and testing. He's invented or co-invented more than 60 innovative technology-based integration and devices. He's the author of 12 books, 15 screenplays, 12 scientific papers, articles, and scientific monographs, and serves as reviewer and editor for five peer-reviewed scientific publications. And uh, David Yurth, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, thanks very much, Richard. It's great to, great to talk to you again. Uh, before we give people an update, let's just dial back very quickly, and, and we'll tell them, uh, I'll get you to tell them, in a nutshell, uh, about this, uh, it's a long name, the Corona Discharge Gas Plasma Disassociation System. We'll call it the CO2 device. Uh, in a nutshell, what does it do? Well, it's a pretty interesting proposition. Uh, people have been trying for the better part of 30 years in the scientific and research uh, community to find a way to dismember the carbon dioxide molecule. It's relatively easy to do that with a water molecule. In fact, 
There are all kinds of things uh, all over the world and millions of hits if you Google uh, oxyhydrogen gas uh, on the internet. But what we discovered when we began looking at this topic several years ago, after reviewing more than a thousand scientific papers, about a hundred of which are right specifically on point to the topic that we were looking for, is that the, the current uh, uh, conventional thinking holds that carbon dioxide as a gas molecule is so stable, it's such a happy molecule, remains uh, generally consistent between a minus 160 degrees Fahrenheit and more than 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit. So introducing some sort of excitation source to take that molecule apart under laboratory controlled conditions has proved to be uh, much bigger a challenge than the scientific community uh, anticipated. And the reason you want to take the CO2 molecule apart is why? It, it's the principal contributor to climate change gases. Uh, the only gas that contributes to climate change more than CO2 is methane, and when reduced to its principal constituents, methane becomes carbon dioxide. So the whole purpose of the Climate Change Accords held in Paris in 2016 was to find ways to diminish the production of carbon dioxide and carbon particulates as a function of industrial production. They introduced 11 different approaches to dealing with the problem. And all of them deal with carbon dioxide and other climate change gases in the context of their having already been produced and released into the environment, then what do you do? Right. They talk about sequester sequestering the CO2, which is an expensive proposition. Well, it doesn't work. No. You can't, you can't take industrial-grade CO2 and pump it down an empty well hole and expect it to stay there. No. And, and, and the, the Paris Accord, in terms of from, from the Canadian perspective, in order for us to meet the obligations of the Paris Accord, which is absolutely uh, absurd, by 2030, we would have to essentially collapse our energy and our agricultural sectors. Not going to happen in a million years. Well, we had a, we had a long... Uh, cordial conversation with former governor general of uh, the provinces, uh, the Honorable Edward Schreier, here in Salt Lake City last fall. Right, former uh, pre uh, premier of uh, Manitoba and our former, um, you're right, the, the former um, Go governor, governor general, general of Canada. That's right. right. And a, a really wonderful man. Uh, his master's degree, incidentally, is in energy economics. Hmm. So you know, he really understands the issues here. And the challenge in Canada is that if by 2030 someone hasn't figured out how to solve this problem, the coal production and, and use of coal as an electrical power production fuel will stop completely. It will end in 2030. Right. What that, what that means for the Canadian economy is that in the beginning, Within 18 months after they push that button, the, the, the countries of Canada, the, the provinces and, and, and the territories and Alaska together will end up paying out more than $12 billion in forfeiture fees 
for having canceled the power production agreements that are related to coal burning power production and they will lose 34 percent of their industrial base and all the jobs and all the revenue that's there you generated. Go. Yeah, I mean that this country. dog won't hunt. That's it's, it's everyone it's knows horrible. it's a fraud. Everyone knows the Paris Accord is is a is a fraud. But you have found a way uh, have. to eliminate not only CO2 but other noxious fumes that are produced by the burning of fossil fuels. We have, and after examining the literature. And after about 25 years in the business of building and testing energy-related prototypes of one kind or another in our own laboratories and with more than 300 other companies who have been engaged in similar pursuits over the years, we've learned some things about what makes gases do what they do. The conventional approach in physics has been to reduce any problem in physical interactions down to a single variable, right? I mean, you have the classic conversation about the physicist who stands up in front of the classroom at the chalkboard, takes a piece of chalk and draws a circle on the board and says, this is a cow, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and so whatever you talk about after that is one variable. Well, the business of climate change gases, there's a lot of variables, but they all have one thing in common. They all obey a very specific set of rules with respect to the, to the forces that bind them together. What modern physics has done is tried under all sorts of really very clever protocols, under carefully controlled, impeccably documented experimental procedure, to subject carbon dioxide in its pure form under controlled conditions to a vast array of single excitation sources. All right, I don't want to get too technical here, David. We're about to head into a break. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll touch uh, again briefly on the CO2 device. And then uh, I also want to talk about some new uh, developments from NOVA Institute that uh, relate to eradicating nuclear waste, uh, and also uh, some help on the horizon for the fracking industry. I know that's not a popular term, fracking, uh, but uh, you may have another solution, uh, or one of your colleagues may have a solution, and we like to talk about solutions, not just problems. All right, we'll do that. David Yurth is with us from the Nova Institute of Technology. We'll be right back. Stay with us. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you on the line from Salt Lake City. David Yurth is uh, with the Nova Institute of Technology, Salt Lake City, and um, we are talking about a piece of technology he and his team have developed. Uh, we're calling it the CO2 device. It has a much longer, more complicated name. <laughs> but the CO2 device will eradicate... Um, 
all of the noxious fumes, including carbon dioxide, uh, from the from before it comes out the tailpipe, not only uh, in an internal combustion engine or on a, any vehicle, could be retrofitted uh, in, in gas vents for uh, power plants, which means that we could burn coal in a clean way without sequestering the CO2. That would make it a little more competitive with natural gas. Uh, we could bring an industrial revolution to, to the places in the, in the world that need it desperately, places like the continent of Africa. Imagine burning fossil fuels with impunity. Um, so since we last spoke, David, what kind of, um, what kind of attention is this device? I think you were in, involved in, with, with talks with Volkswagen or someone like that, and Lord knows at that time they could use some, some technology like this. Yes, we've been, since uh, we talked together about, I guess it's been almost nine months ago now, mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've certainly had some interesting engagements. Uh, we have licensing arrangements now in process uh, with folks from China and India and the Middle East and uh, Chile, uh, including uh, some interesting folks that we've been working with in Canada who are who are really focused on finding a way to remediate the the climate gas issue so that we can salvage the coal industry and and do power production without contaminating the environment and and not only the co2 um, but also other other noxious fumes that come out of uh, gasoline well that's right uh, gasoline is particularly difficult because about 50 to 60 percent of the fuel that runs through your engine never gets burned. So in your exhaust profile, you have carbon dioxide, you have water vapor, you have carbon monoxide, you have oxides of nitrogen, Mm -hmm. and you also have a significant quantity of uncombusted fuel. And in order for you to really clean up the environment and eliminate the toxicity of those emissions, you not only have to figure out how to dissociate, how to fracture the, the, the exhaust gas molecules, but you also have to fracture the un- uncombusted fuel molecules. And you have to figure out how to do that without turning your tailpipe into a flamethrower. Right. And, and so the end result would be that your engine would uh, not only would not produce noxious fumes, uh, but it would also uh, burn, more fu- burn fuel more efficiently. Well, that's right. We have a front-end solution. Our patent on that was issued on the 12th of January of this year, since we talked last. And I think we set some kind of a land speed record with that. We, From the time we filed to the time we were actually issued was about 13 months. What's uh, the, and this could be, this could be uh, placed on any vehicle, right? It could be placed on an older right. vehicle. It's that's a simple... Right. We, use, we use a specially uh, developed spark plug which is a one-for-one replacement with a regular spark plug and then the second piece of that if you want to add that is a uh, a very high voltage ignition coil and the third piece that goes with it is a very high speed switching unit that delivers a double pulse to the spark plug the first half of the pulse is amps the second half of the pulse is very high voltage we had to design a new kind of spark plug to be able to accommodate all that current because a conventional spark plug just explodes when we do that. Right. I mean, if you get a big enough spark, you could disassociate, you could disassociate the, uh, the water from the hydrogen as you're driving. 
Well, that's would, right. And and that hydrogen then acts as more kind of an incendiary device and burns, ignites more fuel. Uh, so you can run your engine far leaner uh, without, you know, blowing out the pistons. I mean, why isn't the world beating a path to your door? This is the <laughs> most disruptive technology I have heard about in many years, and you have proof of concept. It, it works. There's no question, right? Yes, that's true. Well, why isn't this on the front page of the New York Times? It's all a question of how you manage your enterprise. Uh, when we first communicated with Volkswagen, for example, they were in very desperate trouble in the media. We, we, sent, we were contacted by them after you and I did Coast to Coast. Within three days after we did that show, the QM uh, for Volkswagen America in Chattanooga contacted us. And, uh, you know, we had a flurry of exchanges, went through the pipeline directly to Wolfsburg, Austria, and disappeared into the giant industrial black hole back there. <laughs> and, uh, and what we discovered subsequent to that in conversations with Ford, with General Motors, with Bosch, and Autoleave, and again with Volkswagen and with others, is that in that institutional world, there is really no tolerance for an innovation that's introduced from outside the house. There's no capacity to accommodate it. Wow. It, tread, it treads on everybody's territories inside the company. It forces the company to reconsider its allocation of resources. It creates all sorts of interesting problems for the supply side of the manufacturing equation and the not invented here syndrome is very much alive and well in the institutional and industrial world. And, and certainly in government too, and probably worse, so, far so worse than government. There's just no, there's no tolerance for a solution that is not developed inside the house. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that disheartening? Uh, so these synthetic beasts, I call them, these corporations that become so large uh, they have developed this culture that is ba basically sort of this fortress mentality, and it is antithetical to real innovation. I had lunch three years ago with the new CEO of uh, 3M Corporation. He came into our laboratory with his director of business development and his chief scientist, Vladimir, came in and looked at our technology, and their chins dropped, and they said, wow, how cool. And we said, well... You know, do you want to work together to try to put this into some of your into some of your technologies? And he said, "Yes, we'd love to." He said, "Our problem is that 3M is so large that it would take one full year for us to swing the bow into the wind to even be able to address this technology. And in the meantime, while we're trying to innovate, we have to buy ten new companies a year in order to show a profit." Wow. There's no innovation going on inside that establishment. They are buying innovation and losing track of their core competence simply because the overhead is crushing them from the inside. So I, I want people, I want this to sink in. I want people to understand what you have. I mean, this is a lightweight device, fairly inexpensive, could be installed on any car and would allow us uh, to burn fossil fuels with impunity because it eliminates CO2, noxious fumes. So not only uh, for those who subscribe to anthropogenic global warming, I am not one, 
However, you know, that, doesn't, that shouldn't stop us from wanting to conserve energy, uh, wanting us to reduce our impact on the environment, reduce and eliminate air pollution. This device, this CO2 device, does all that, and yet you can't get it to market in a significant way because corporations, they have this culture that is, as I say, uh, in- antithetical to, to innovation. The turn from the time you get the technology on the table in the executive boardroom till the time it actually appears in original equipment by the manufacturer in the automotive industry is never less than five years. Hmm. And what that means is that if we go after the aftermarket, right, the third-party retrofit automotive aftermarket, right. we've talked with people like you know Walker Group. These guys... Uh, manufacture aftermarket ignition uh, devices uh, in 4,400 retail outlets in North America. And they love this technology, and we're right in the process of having a conversation with them about private labeling and manufacturing this stuff for cars and light-duty trucks. Uh, But having original equipment, and especially in the automobile industry, and most especially in the United States, this is a particularly difficult and vexing problem. Right. I, I'm guessing that if someone were to have that installed on a new vehicle, they would void their warranty, for example. Among other things, look, mm-hmm. if I put our technology in the front end of a, of a Volkswagen Jetta, and I put our technology in the exhaust of the Volkswagen Jetta, that car that ordinarily gets is rated EPA rated at 40 miles per gallon will get 80 miles per gallon because <laughs> this burns a hundred percent of the fuel right right and it generates an increment of horsepower it will not only burn half as much fuel but it'll drive as much as 20 to 30% more horsepower in the same volume of fuel. Mm. And it'll burn cleaner. And it burns much cleaner. It so changes, there, there goes, changes the exhaust profile. By the time it gets out the exhaust pipe, all you have is elemental carbon particles that are a thousand times smaller than the PPM 2.5s that the EPA is focused on, and water and oxygen, and a little bit of ozone, and nitrogen. Well, here's, and here's, that's it. Wow. Here's the other problem, then. You, you've eliminated the built-in obsolescence, and the auto manufacturers aren't going to like that. Well, the guys that really don't like it are the Oppenheimer boys that sell platinum to make the catalytic converters. Because <laughs> right. a catalytic converter becomes a useless piece of equipment. That's right. That's right. There you, you go. You don't need it anymore. The other you, obstacle is... We've I, already run into that one. I'm so. sure you have. <laughs> Here's the other obstacle, uh, and this is where the uh, sort of the political subterfuge comes in. Uh, you may or may not agree with this, but because I see things like the Paris Accord and before that the, the Kyoto Accord... Uh, it's not about reducing uh, CO2. It, uh, it's not about finding solutions to the problem. It is, what we have is, uh, it's a control mechanism, and it's about a shift in wealth, massive, a massive shift uh, in wealth. And so they're not looking, they're not interested 
in this technology, I'm guessing, because this is a solution. This allows us to burn fossil fuels with impunity. This would guarantee American energy independence. This could fuel the uh, a new industrial age uh, in the United States. Uh, and all of those objectives are not shared by uh, a, certain, a certain mindset that would like to take down the United States, that sees the United States or the West as and, and growth as the enemy. What do you think of that, David Yurth? Well, look, here's, the, here's my take on it, uh, Richard. Automobile exhaust is far more difficult to dissociate, to ionize, fragment, fracture, and dissociate than almost any other exhaust gases because you have so much unignited fuel in the exhaust profile. If I put this same technology on the back end of a coal-fired power plant, and we're doing that now. Mm-hmm. One megawatt per hour of coal-fired power plant production produces one and a half tons of carbon dioxide every hour. Mm-hmm. Okay, And we've run through the calculations and we've looked at our technologies and our results and our data samples. And we know that we can, if we can tap off one half of one percent of the power production of a coal-fired power plant, we can eliminate the climate gas and carbon particulate emissions from that from that power plant. It's a, it, it, it just simply takes them apart and returns them to the environment in their elemental form. All right, I've got to take another time out. When we come back, I'll allow that to sink in for those listening. And then I want to talk about eradicating radioactive waste. We can make nuclear power viable and safe. And uh, David Yurth will tell us how. And fracking. Yes, we'll talk fracking as well. Stay with us right here on The Conspiracy Show. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. David Yurth joins us from Salt Lake City. He is with Nova Institute of Technology in Salt Lake City, and uh, we've been talking about... Uh, the CO2 device. Uh, I want to move on. And um, first, before we do that, uh, give people a website where they can learn more. If there's a YouTube channel, people can see this device. Tell us about it. Of course. Uh, Nova Institute of Technology has a website, which is found at www.novaiot.com. And on the Nova website, you'll find toggles for our technology page. And the technology page lists the inventory of technologies that we own and are in the process of developing and integrating and licensing. And there's some other interesting information there about who we are and what we're doing and occasional updates about the technology process that we're involved in with this and some other things. All right. Um, we, we spoke uh, a few days ago, and you had some, even if this isn't exciting enough, you have some more exciting news that relates to... Um, I'm not sure if it's the same type of 
of uh, a device, but it could be used in the nuclear power industry. Tell me, tell me more about that. We certainly do, and you know, talk about a long, slow burn. This has been a, a, a technology development process that we've 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 struggled with for more than 25 years now. We've known since 1997 how to eliminate the radioactive emissions in high-level nuclear fuel waste. The Department of Energy has replicated our technique and our apparatus and independently verified the protocols that we've used and we've been threatened with arrest as terrorists because we insisted on persisting with this with this technology and, and research development program. Excuse me? How does Sir? that work? How does that happen? You're you're, you've been declared a terrorist because you can eradicate <laughs> radioactive, radioactive waste. Uh, this is one of those perverse places. Uh, in a word, what, what happened was that uh, by 2005, the Department of Energy, through some government laboratories, had independently validated our technique. And then because the agenda under W's administration was to encapsulate and bury all high-level nuclear waste under Yucca Mountain. Mm -hmm. And for other reasons that we didn't understand for another 10 years, because our technology actually worked, uh, they absolutely had to find a way to put a stop to the development of it. Uh, because the, 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 the food trough that all of the contractors at DOE were backed up to amounted to nothing less than about $25 billion a year uh -huh. to build and maintain and manage the, the Yucca Mountain uh, project. Even when Obama took office, uh, we, we took a second run at it. We were invited by the number three guy at DOE to come in and present our technology to a closed meeting of all the 26 department heads of the Department of Energy um, we worked for a year to put that presentation together and then two weeks before we were actually scheduled to fly out to Washington I got a message from him that apologized profusely by telling me that the contractors who actually own and control the Department of Energy were so upset by the fact that he was going to allow us to come in and talk about the technology that he was having so much political pressure he couldn't let us come in. The contractors don't want it known that it works. They didn't want it known as a matter of record that we'd ever even talked about it. Wow. So, what about this? Well, how does this, we've got about two minutes here. This is a short segment, then we'll come back and talk more. But how does this, how does it work? I mean, how, how does it eradicate or turn radioactive waste into an inert substance? You have to change the half-life of the material. And if your listeners don't know what that means, in the nuclear decay cycle process, there is a, uh, a process by which the nucleus of each of the radioactive materials dissociates itself because it's energetically imbalanced. And the amount of time it takes to do that and become a different material, it's called its half-life. And in the, in the case of enriched uranium, for example, there are 10 sequential daughter products that go through the half-life process. Well, these daughter products remain radioactive. Some of them 
for very short periods of time for for nanoseconds and others of them remain radioactive at that level for as much as 250,000 years like strontium well yeah i mean you get strontium 90 uh, remains radioactive in its primary daughter product for 30,000 years. So what you have to do to stop the emissions process is you have to find an effective way to dismantle the atom. Effectively, what we're doing is the same thing that happens that makes an atomic bomb create all that energy, but we have to do it in a way that doesn't create catastrophic annihilation in the process. Yeah, that would be handy. Okay, we'll take a ton of time out. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about that and sure. fracking as well. David Yurth, Nova Institute of Technology, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free. 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740. Or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with David Yurth from Salt Lake City, Nova Institute of Technology. Give us the website again, David. www.novaiot.com. All right. So uh, back to the uh, disassociation of radioactive uh, radioactive uh, material. Uh, so what are you, you bringing the half-life down to what? Let's say we, you, we made the example of strontium-90, a half-life of 30,000 years. So what can you do with the strontium-90 molecule or atom? We can dissociate the nuclear components through a series of steps that render that material inert in the form of an isotope of lithium. So it has no more radioactive emissions at all. Yeah. And, the way we, and the way we do that, mm -hmm. if your listeners are really interested, they can go to the web and Google the term high-density charge cluster. Picture a spark emitter that shoots a big cloud of electrons that organize themselves into the form of a bagel. I can imagine a, that. <laughs> a, a torus. Okay. It's not supposed to happen. The rules of physics says it's not supposed to happen, but it's a proven phenomenon. It's a very stable archetypal form, the torus. We call it a bagel, made of electrons. Mm -hmm. The center of that, of that bagel is very highly negatively charged. So if we propagate the bagel and shoot it through a vacuum chamber that is populated with a surplus of protons, which are... 1800 times more massive than an electron and which are positively charged we can attract one proton into the middle of that one millionth of a meter diameter bagel it's one micron in diameter we can attract one proton for every hundred thousand electrons so that by the time that bagel carrying 10 to the 16th power 
protons in its center traveling at one-tenth the speed of light impacts the surface of a nuclear fuel rod, for example, a zirconium fuel rod filled with pellets comprised of thorium and enriched nuclear uranium, when that bagel hits that surface, the first thing that happens is all those electrons, 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd electrons called Avogadro's number, a 10 followed by 23 zeros, all of those electrons hit at the same time, they manifest themselves in the form of heat and they melt a great big hole. And then the protons come charging through the hole and at one-tenth light speed impact the nuclei of the target material. Picture a bowling ball striking magnetic bowling pins stacked up in a pyramid. What happens is that the bowling ball has kinetic energy, it has mass in motion. And that momentum knocks that pyramid down and those, and those magnetic bowling pins fall down to a lower energy state and they reorganize themselves in a flattened topology north to south, north to south, north to south. They're not a pyramid anymore, they're just a clump okay. I, of, I... of self-organized bowling pins. What happens in that process is that we have now liberated a lot of photons, lots of light and lots of heat and some neutrinos and some gamma rays and a bunch of other products, but we haven't created an explosion. What we've done is knocked it apart and liberated the binding energy. Okay. And then and the next time that stack gets impacted by another bowling ball, it does it again. And that process then remediates the emissions because it changes the atomic structure of the material. All right. I got about a tenth of that maybe, and that's not bad for uh, someone who got about as <laughs> sorry. But that's no, all right. No, 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 no. That's, you know, this is pretty heady stuff, but and uh, I, I got the gist of it. But so we've done it and it works. Okay, that's the main point. Now, applications. If if the nuclear the radio radioactive material has already escaped, can you remediate that? When it gets into the environment, you're hosed. Ah. Okay. See, if you look at the video at Fukushima, for example, on the beach south of the power plant at Daiichi, there are four million garbage bags stacked four deep on the beach next to the ocean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great place. And the, and, and the contents of those bags is the four to six inches of top soil and surface material that was scraped off the top of everything within 20 kilometers from the, from the event site. They put it in garbage bags and they stacked it up on the beach. Lord. So if this system were located on the site, at very least, we could, we could process all the materials in those bags, one bag at a time. It would only take 100,000 years <laughs> to do that. Well, that's if you had one device. Yeah. What it, if you had... Would, I mean, come on. <laughs> it's just, you know, what are you going to do? You take 150 kilograms, 300 pounds, and you run it through this apparatus, you only have to do that four million times. Wow. 
I mean, it's it's a it's an extinction level event, Richard. It's really yeah. scary. Yeah. And the thing that's most scary about it is that we know what to do. There are three other methods that we've tested that also work for different kinds of radioactive waste, but we are not permitted to be in the game, and now we know why. Mm-hmm. Pork barrel politics. No, sir. It's much more scary than that. Oh. On April the 2nd, 2014, during the Fukushima Solutions Convention, which was aired live from the University of Texas at Austin, John Apsley and I moderated that conference, and we released photographic high-definition images of a stack of what we later learned was 750 pounds of weapons-grade plutonium pencils in the cooling pond below Daiichi Number 4. What that means is that the civilian power plant located at Fukushima was used as a feedstock source for high-level radioactive waste, which was then processed at a laboratory less than a quarter of a mile away to create weapons-grade plutonium. For whom? And the Japanese government admitted it, hmm. and they reaffirmed re, uh, their admission on March 5th of this year. And, and who is that, for whom is that weapons-grade plutonium being produced? Look, they said they're going to send it back using a British freighter, specifically equipped to ship nuclear material back to the United States. What's going on here, Richard, is that everywhere in the world, contrary to every nuclear treaty that has ever been signed since the nuclear process became part of the industrial world, civilian nuclear waste is being used as the feedstock for military weapons production everywhere in the world. And the contractors at DOE are the guys that do it, and they're the guys that are refusing to allow us to take our technologies, which they know works, on site to solve the problem. Oh, boy. That's the real agenda. That's ugly. Yeah. Oh, dear. And it, okay. And it's, and it's a fact. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. No. I wish it wasn't true. I didn't know you knew Dr. John Apsley. He's a good friend of the program. He's been on here many times. Dr. John Apsley's one of the real deal guys of all time. I believe it. I, I am, I, and his book about Fukushima and the work he's done to try to save the lives of the guys on the SS Ronald Reagan is absolutely off the charts. I love that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's a great man. I love that guy. Um, all right, on that happy note, I want to move on to... Uh... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, you, at least you're, you've, you've, got, you've put it on the table, okay? The solution is there. Now it's up to the rest of us, uh, you know, to, to, to push that boulder up the hill. So I want to talk... We've only got about four minutes here. I want to talk about... Um, okay. Uh, this issue that that, that uh, is posed by fracking. Yep. Uh, one of the problems with fracking is it produces a backwash. Yep. It's an incredibly high uh, uh, salt water. content. Yep. It's it's a brine as you describe it. And yep. then, from what I understand, the way you explain it, they push they they put that brine to get rid of it. They push it back into the uh, into a hole, and that yep. causes it pollutes the water table, um, and it also causes earthquakes. earthquakes. That's right. So, 
what to do then if we're going to make fracking a viable, uh, what to do with all of this brine? You well, have a solution. We do have a solution. And In four minutes or less, sir. <laughs> and, it's, and it's just a dandy. Okay. Picture a reservoir, five acres, on the bottom, with sloped sides at a 30-degree angle, filled with clean, pure, bright, sparkling, 37% saturated brine. Okay. Super concentrated brine. Mm-hmm. Insulate the bottom, put a cover on the top, and let the sun shine on it. That pond will, ac- will accommodate about 11 million gallons of brine. All right. When the sun shines on it, it'll drive the temperature at the bottom of the pond to over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And by designing a system that passively absorbs that heat and then transfers it into a, uh, uh, a building, we've developed an engine, not a Stirling engine, but a brand new kind of turbine engine that uses a phase change gas like the stuff that runs your refrigerator. Right. When it absorbs that heat, it expands into the open spaces inside the turbine with almost as much pressure as you get when you burn gasoline inside your engine. That's impressive. Just with the temperature. But it burns nothing. It creates no exhaust. It's a closed system. A five-acre pond that uses our technology integration right. generates between 7.5 and 10 megawatts of power continuously 24 7 365 for 40 years wow and that's enough to power how many homes well 10 megawatts of power is enough to power something on the order of 25,000 homes oh good lord oh good lord and it burns no fuel what it means is that the state of oklahoma's executive order now can be used to in- increase the production of electrical power output by turning the brine into a storage battery for sunshine. All right. So, Saudi Arabia trying to stick it to the United States by driving the price of gas down and putting fracking out of business. Uh, Now we've got a viable solution. And um, that is a happy note to end on. Uh, We'll have to have you back on, and we'll we'll have to talk more about this. But this is absolutely... It's It's a lot of fun. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. David, you're doing uh, God's work. Appreciate it. Well, we appreciate your time, Richard. We're, we're doing everything we can to try to fix the problem. And uh, we really appreciate your time and attention. All right. Now, everybody listening, it's up to you now to get this ball rolling. David Yurth, Nova Institute of Technology. The website, one more time. www.novaiot.com. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Richard. All right, the website, strangeplanet.ca or strangeplanet.tv. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A hearty welcome to those of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. Here in Toronto, that's AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Uh, The AM station, by the way, is a real blowtorch. It's 50,000 watts, clear channel, uh, and it penetrates deep down into the United States once the sun goes down. Uh, Welcome to those listening in on the Zoomer app and the Conspiracy Show app, both very cool apps, the best radio show apps anywhere, and uh, they're both free downloads, of course. Uh, A shout-out to those listening in on one of our affiliates and the podcasts, of course, at Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and TalkZone.com, wherever and however you're listening, I thank you for your fine company. A rock investor, R. Gary Patterson, is standing by. Uh, July 3rd is the anniversary uh, of the death of James Douglas Morrison, the most charismatic, mysterious frontman in rock history. Of course, the Doors continue to influence musicians to this very day, a half century after they first appeared on the scene at the uh, Whiskey A Go-Go on the, on the uh, Hollywood Strip. Uh, Gary will attempt to separate fact from fiction uh, surrounding the life and death of Jim Morrison uh, in, in mere moments. Let me remind you uh, that season four of my television program, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, uh, airs Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern across Canada on Vision TV. And seasons one through three are available in the United States on Hulu and Amazon.com. I mentioned Gary Patterson. He is uh, coming up to Toronto for a special live event Sunday, October the 16th, this is a Strange Planet Productions and Conspiracy Culture presentation. And it's uh, called Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Of course, the title of Gary's book. Again, that's Sunday, October the 16th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, University of Toronto here in, Can- in uh, Toronto. Uh, special guests will be joining us uh, via Skype, including Peggy Sugaran, the dear lifelong friend of Buddy Holly, and, of course, the inspiration for the song Peggy Sue and Peggy Sue Got Married. And there'll be other uh, special Skype guests as well. So for more information, uh, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca and the events page at conspiracyculture.com. Or you can just call the store, Conspiracy Culture, 416 416-916-916-1696. Jim Morrison, the Lizard King, found dead in the bathtub of his Paris apartment by his wife Pamela Corson in July of 1971. His death has always been shrouded in mystery for decades. Researchers, authors, fans have speculated that Morrison may have faked his death to escape fame. He's been spotted around the world over the years. One story goes that he's a horse rancher in the Pacific Northwest. Others have written books suggesting he was murdered or perhaps the victim of a voodoo ritual. 
Others suggest he died of a drug overdose, but at a club called the Rock and Roll Circus on Paris's famous left bank, and then his body was taken from the washroom stall back to his apartment uh, to avoid bad publicity for the club. So, which is it? Let's discuss the life and death of the great Jim Morrison. Gary Patterson is a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll. The Walrus Was Paul, his first book, detailed the Paul is Dead hoax of the late 1960s, and that book really established Gary's credentials as an authority on the Beatles. His second book, a bestseller from Simon & Schuster, is titled Held Hounds on Their Trail, Tales from the Rock and Roll Graveyard, and then that book was reworked and expanded and released as Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths and Legends, sorry, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. He's, of course, a, a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM, And this program, plus my television program, in fact, he appeared on our TV episode about Jim Morrison, which aired, I believe, in season three. Gary Patterson, how are you, you old rock and roller, you? (laughs) I'm doing great. How are you, Richard? Not bad. I was uh, trying to decide the other day um, whether I'm a a mod or a rocker. And I, I have to say, I think I'm probably more of a mod than a rocker. How about you? I think I'm a mocker, um, as <laughs> Spinal tap, yes. <laughs> I'll be a mocker. I can do both. All right. Uh, all right. Jim Morrison, I mentioned that, you know, so many theories. Uh, one, that he was, that was Jim. He died in a bathtub, accidental overdose. Uh, uh, the other one, of course, that he actually died at the Rock and Roll cir- Circus Club and uh, had some, he got into some bad cocaine or heroin. And um, they took him out of the bathroom stall, back to the Paris apartment, put him in the tub. And then the other theory, of course, that he faked his death. Um, And, you know, there's so many interesting clues surrounding uh, that. I mean, he did talk about that um, in the 60s. He talked to his, I I guess, his, his producer or his manager about, you know, what would happen to business if I were to die. And he talked about sort of reinventing himself. Maybe I'll become kind of a shirt and tie and jacket kind of clean-cut guy. Um, where does Gary Patterson uh, fall in all of this uh, wonderful debate? Well, I have to tell you, you probably have to go back to why all these clues happened in the first place. And that's because how many people actually saw Jim Morrison's body? Two. And, of course, you know, Marianne Faithful was one. Oh. And Pamela Corson. Marianne Faithful. Yeah actually claimed in a in her autobiography that her boyfriend at the time is the one who sold the heroin to Pamela Corson and they immediately left but she claimed that she had seen Jim's body we know that Pamela Corson saw it uh, we know the coroner saw it and we know that according to the coroner The funeral homes in Paris were closed, so they brought in a body bag, put dry ice in it, and Pamela Corson slept next to his corpse for about two nights. But when the door sent their manager, Bill Siddons, over to Paris to make sure, Mm -hmm. all he saw was a simple wooden coffin that already had the lid screwed on. And when they buried Jim at Père Lachaise, Ray Manzarek asked him to make sure to make sure he saw the body. And when he found out he hadn't, all these rumors started because the Morrison family really wasn't notified until after the funeral. So they were not able to get there. So if you don't have a body, 
that nobody could actually say he was in that grave. When Pamela Corson was questioned over it, when uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive was released, he she was asked, was Jim alive? And she said, well, if he were alive, he would call me. Now, wasn't that a crazy answer? It is a very crazy answer. Yeah, and, that, of course, she died a year later. Right, right. Um, John, was it John Densmore who stood on the grave at Père Lachaise when the doors went over there, the surviving members, and said, you know, this is too short. Jim, Jim was around six foot, and the grave, the plot itself is about a few inches short anyway, which is kind of interesting. Well, actually, I've stood on that grave, and it's very short. Mm. And I'm a little over 6'2", so uh, if I were to lie, lie on the grave, my head would <laughs> be much further up. So the grave does appear to be too small. And when he was buried, the grave was only leased. So I think it was leased for 20 years. Right. So... It was actually supposed to be opened in 2001 on July 8th. And the reason why it was to be opened was there's so much graffiti all over the cemetery. And, you know, it really was romantic to walk through Père Lachaise and follow the graffiti to Morrison's grave. Right. I mean, all the luminaries are there. Oscar Wilde. Sure. Um, you know, Chopin. Chopin is there. I mean, this that's which begs another question. How does a guy, a foreigner, uh, get into Père Lachaise? And, and just like, uh, I mean, there must be a waiting list to get in there. And he dies and literally overnight he's planted there. I mean, how does that happen? You know, what was odd, he had only visited Père Lachaise a couple of days before his death. And how they got him in there was that they introduced him as an American poet so the committee that allowed him to be buried in the cemetery thought that he would be on the, the same stanza with Chopin, which he was, but not a rock star, a poet. And that's how he got there faster is because of those credentials that he was well known as an American poet. So that's how he was buried. Um, I only think maybe eight people were at his funeral. And I can tell you, being a visitor to his grave maybe 10 times, he's the only guarded grave in Père Lachaise with uh, at least one policeman, maybe two, and a barrier around his grave. He's the only one. You will never see graffiti that says Fred with an arrow pointing to Chopin, but <laughs> you will find one that says Jim, and sometimes the eye becomes the arrow, and you just follow it. The closer you get, you used to see Doors lyrics written on tombstones. Now, the French hated the idea that these graffiti artists were marking it, so they were going to evict him from the cemetery and probably would have been Jim Morrison's 2001 L.A. tour. <laughs> but the family worked out a deal where they would pay to have the graffiti removed they also paid to have a security system put in Jim's grave. I think the big thing happened was that when the wall came down and the Eastern Europeans for the first time made their journey to Paris to visit Morrison's grave, it was a very party-like atmosphere 
with lots of drinking and illegal drugs. And one of the Eastern Europeans drove a car into the cemetery gates and the French decided they didn't want those types of hooligans mm. in their very classic cemetery. So that was another reason why they wanted Morrison removed. But he's still there. And Ray Manzarek said that the day they were going to remove the body, that he would be there with Doors fans all over the world saying, open the box, open the box, because he didn't think Morrison was there. Well, yes, he's on record as saying if anyone could have pulled it off, Ray Manzarek, of course, the Doors keyboardist, uh, who could have faked a, birth cert- a death certificate, uh, uh, it, would have been, it would have been Jim Morrison. It, now, did not the rumor has it that Morrison actually visited Père Lachaise several times in the days or weeks leading up to his death. Is that true? It's true. Yes. Hmm. Just like his his uh, his inspiration uh, was it the, the French poet was it Baudelaire? Oh, let's see who was or, it. Yes, and uh, Rimbaud. Rimbaud, right, right. Yeah, and Rimbaud used to sleep in the in that cemetery apparently. <laughs> well. Rambeau is the one who inspired Morrison's taste for the delineation of the senses, where he would uh, do his death rides in his Ford Mustang, and then he would walk on ledges on high-rise hotels in L.A. And it was a complete idea of facing and cheating death. He lived in squalor. I mean, he had tons of money, but he always stayed in the seedy side of hotels. And like Rambeau, it was the idea to, to release the spirit of the, of the poet, which he wanted to do. Well, speaking of, of spirits, and we're, we're coming up on a break here, we'll, we'll take a time out. But, of course, there is that um, uh, terrific scene from Oliver Stone's uh, movie, The Doors, and, and people are very divided on whether, you know, that's a, a great movie or a horrible movie. <laughs> uh, but there is that scene where, of course, as a young boy, Jim and his family traveling along this highway in New Mexico, and they witness this horrific car crash. Uh, which I believe involved some some uh, Native Americans. And yeah. Jim always believed that a shaman, the spirit of the shaman who was killed in that accident, inhabited his body. Uh, maybe we'll pick up on that point when we come back. R. Gary Patterson, take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Well, Jim was a very uh, intelligent, bright young man, and uh, behaved himself pretty well, really. And uh, he liked to uh, write and uh, draw pictures he was an avid reader he read everything and then he also wrote he would write in a he had a book and he would this was in high school he would learn a new word and then he'd write a whole story around it so his vocabulary was incredible 
He liked all the classics and uh, read everything he could get his hands on. <clears throat> and he was always delighted to go to his grandmother's house because she had a library. One time he just got up out of class and told his teacher he was going to have a brain tumor removed. And he just walked out of class to go read. We are back with R. Gary Patterson, the fox molder of rock, as we commemorate uh, the uh, the anniversary of Jim Morrison's death, the front man of uh, The Doors, very, very influential uh, band. Um, and we just uh, came out of that break and we heard uh, some clips there from Jim Morrison's uh, father, Admiral, Admiral George Stephen Morrison, um, who passed away in 2008, and uh, then his sister, Ann Robin uh, Morrison, his, his younger sister, Ann, with some interesting comments. All right, uh, uh, Gary, I, I, we mentioned the, um, the car crash uh, that the Morrison family witnessed on that highway in New Mexico, and Jim believed that the spirit of a shaman that was involved in that crash inhabited his body. Uh, and some, I think this is mentioned in, in Sugarman and Hopkins' book, um, one of the theories is that that shaman sort of provided the, um, it was Jim's muse, and provided that inspiration for him and helped him write. Uh, and that uh, it's possible that spirit left his body, leaving Jim sort of um, lacking, I guess, in creativity, and his body was totally worn out. When that spirit left him, he just sort of gave up the ghost himself. What do you think of that? I think it's an interesting story. I know that when the doors performed, Morrison was called the electric shaman, and he would go into these dance moves that he said was the Indian spirit or spirits that had come into his body. I think that Morrison's rock and roll image as, you know, more like a Lord Byron who had been exiled for his for his sins with his exhibition in uh, Miami, especially to get him to be a poet and back to France. But I think that there were rumors that when he died, there was some sort of sacrificial attempt to remove his eyes, to release the spirit from inside him. So you hear this. I mean, it's a part of the, of the legend of Morrison and his death. For me, I don't know if I really buy into it, that much. I know that when Jim was young, when he was in school, he was reading books that were so advanced that his teachers actually went to the Library of Congress to see if the books existed that he did the book reports on. So he was very advanced and he had an IQ at least of 150. So he was a very bright fellow. So when you talk about creativity and and all that, if there was a spirit inside, then he also had the knowledge and the, the fortitude to become a first-class poet and understand the abstract material he was reading. And in some cases, it may have been Crowley-esque, but he had a he was a very great reader. What about these theories that um, he wanted to escape fame? He wasn't happy being a rock and roll star. He he was a poet, mm-hmm. uh, and that he faked his death. Now, you and I have both talked to uh, to Jim's brother-in-law, Alan Graham, and, and mm-hmm. um, Graham said that he saw the, some death scene photos, couldn't really really tell if that was Jim in the bathtub, uh, and there was this, this hanger-on part of Morrison's retinue that, that uh, sometimes stayed at his apartment, even wore Jim's clothes, 
He looked kind of like Rasputin, as a lot of young hippies did back then. Uh, and who knows what state Pamela Corson was in when she, she was a drug addict, when she came in and saw this body in half-submerged in the bathtub. And I believe Alan Graham said this individual's name was Dieter or something like that. I think it was Dietmar. It was, Dietmar. Uh, yeah, a German uh, follower of Jim Morrison who yeah. resembled him uncannily. And he would even go to bars and, and people would think he was Morrison and he'd let them buy them drinks. He wouldn't sure. disabuse them of that notion. What do you think? Could that have been Dietmar in the bathtub? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, here's the thing that gets me. When Sugarman's book came out, Pamela Corson made all these acclamations about shaving his beard and him getting in the tub and she fixed him something to eat. And, uh, but if you listen to the new material, I really believe that Pamela Corson wasn't there that night. And one thing that Alan also brought up, if you remember, is when Morrison's body was found, his body was lying against the water pipes. The taps, right. Nobody sits mm -hmm. that way in a bathtub. Nobody gets no, it. No, you, no. You put your Nobody feet to does. that. You put your feet Which would say that perhaps the body was placed there. Mm -hmm. And if it was placed there, it goes back to the electric circus where Morrison's body was found from a drug overdose. And, of course, there had to be an arrest if, if it was a drug overdose. So the two men who had sold Morrison the drugs said, no, he's not dead, even though an EMT person uh, actually pronounced him dead in the club. The two men who provided the drugs carried him back to his apartment, and they put him in the bathtub. So Corson must have come in late that night. The other theory is that Morrison had found this white powdery substance, which he thought was cocaine, and he snorted it, and he died in the bathtub, and there were uh, drops of blood that would appear to be from, you know, snorted heroin, whatever, that they found in the water. Alan's theory is that the body had to be placed there, which would mean that he was dead before he was in the tub. Right. I mean, we know that Jim was a heavy drinker. In fact, sure. from a very your early age, he probably, uh, you know, coming from a military family, they had cocktail hour. Back mm -hmm. then, you know, there wasn't this prohibition against even pregnant women drinking. People just, they didn't know back then in the 40s. And and uh, Alan has surmised that Jim probably suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome. He was born an alcoholic, but he had an, apparently he didn't do drugs. I mean, he had a, an, an incredible aversion to needles, I'm told. He, he did. He did not like drugs. He did not do drugs. So what are the odds that he would suddenly decide to do cocaine? Well, yeah, that's part of the great mistake. I mean, I'd heard that he had used cocaine earlier, but that he was very much against heroin, and that was one of the problems that Pamela Corson had. And if he had found this white powder, she probably kept her mouth shut because she didn't want him yelling at her about using heroin, and he just assumed it was cocaine and took way too much. And that would mean that, of course, he died of a drug overdose. Now, there were witnesses who claimed that they saw Morrison leave Paris on a plane two to three days after his announced death. So, but it's the same way. You know, Richard, when Michael Jackson died, people cl kept claiming they saw him. Right. You know, right. so it, it's part of the whole mystique of someone passing away. I mean, I'm really surprised 
that no one saw Prince after his death and the idea that he was still alive. <laughs> so there must be an island for dead rock stars who are still alive and Elvis is with them and they're having a great time. But well, there, were, the idea. there were a lot of sightings. Um, in fact, uh, the L.A. Free Press and there were several wire services uh, that reported uh, this is in the early, um, about 1973, I think, Morrison appearing on several occasions in San Francisco, uh, and he was involved with uh, some sort of business and banking transactions with the Bank of America. And right. They, and they even they even quoted the um, the employee that handled the transaction. And he was a guy by the name of Walt Fleischer, and he confirmed that someone resembling Morrison, using that name, was uh, indeed doing business at the bank. And he did add that he was far from sure it was the uh, actual, you know, real McCoy, uh, but because Morrison didn't show him any identification, but this could be that because there was a photo ID already on, on file at the bank uh, with the name True. James Douglas Morrison. So what do, you, what do you make of that whole San Francisco Bank of America story from 1973? I mean, it's a fabulous story, and it would have been at least two years after he died. I think the thing that gets me, if Morrison were still alive, he really loved he really loved his mother, even though he had told everyone at the label his, his family was dead. And the label was very amazed to find his mother and his sister showing up for a concert one night. And, you know, Morrison had to say, well, they're really not dead. But when Clara died, he didn't show. When uh, his father died, he didn't show. Of course, there was some animosity there. If you look at the tombstone, there's a Greek phrase that had been placed on the stone itself. And translated, it means true to his own spirit. His father put it on the tombstone. So it probably shows like, well, you know, we're going to make up over this. But, yeah. I mean, Morrison had been cited so many places in the United States. Uh, and actually, you could have a reality television show with Jim Morrison's children, people who claim to be the children of the Lizard King. You don't know how many I've talked to who claim that Jim Morrison was their father. Uh, one who lived in New Orleans when it came out that he was supposedly Morrison's son there were people on his property, and he had to run someone off with a camera. He said, man, I'm just here to take a picture of the lizard prince. <laughs> and, I mean, you can imagine it. They're females. They're males. There's one fella who actually performed as Morrison, as Morrison's son. And uh, actually, there were two. And one's in prison. And he was in a band with uh, Robbie Krieger's son. Oh, wow. And Interesting. I, and I think he got Robbie's son hooked on heroin, too. Oh, dear. So, you know, he was, his name was Cliff Morrison, and I think he had to pay his way into the Whiskey-A-Go-Go to put on a show. You can go look at some YouTube videos and listen to him. To me, I don't think he sounds like Jim Morrison. I really don't think he looks like Jim Morrison, but he's he's one person who claims to be the son of Jim Morrison. Now, did Morrison fake it? With an IQ of 150, Richard, I'm sure that he was capable of coming up with a way out. And did you ever get a phone call from a mysterious uh, rancher in the Pacific Northwest claiming to be Jim Morrison? I never got the chance to speak to that individual, but I spoke to the um, the ranch, the uh, the promoter 
who who claimed that he was living next door to Jim Morrison. And mm-hmm. um, no, I, and I've seen the um, you know the videos of this this individual. Yep. Uh, and they do kind of an interesting. They superimpose an, uh, an old photo of Jim over this uh, fellow who would be now what seventy two at the time. I guess he was in his late sixties. And it is interesting. I mean, there is a there is a remarkable. Um, resemblance there. He does look like an older version of Jim Morrison. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 who knows? Maybe he's play, hiding in plain sight. I don't know. I, it's the best place to hide would be in plain sight. The promoter that you talked to, I think his first name was George. Yeah. Uh, he was trying to raise money to make a movie. And he was trying to sell the rancher who he claimed to be Morrison as Jim Morrison to bring in the money to make this film that had nothing to do with Jim Morrison is actually the story of the promoter's life. Yeah. I bet you I had seven phone calls from them and, uh, you know, trying to get me to say, yes, this is Jim Morrison. You know, I thought it'd be kind of interesting to have Alan Graham come up and take a look and, (laughs) and have a talk with him. Indeed. But, Listen, I got to I got to cut in here. We got to take a time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss the uh, the strange life and death of Jim Morrison with our Gary Patterson. Back in a moment. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Where were you when you found out that he died? What was that like? Was that, the, was that an expected thing? Was it a horrible shock? No. What I mean... Well, no, it wasn't expected. I thought, oh, my God, he's... He's going to be an Irish drunk and live to 80. Ray and I and Robbie were at our rehearsal room and on a break. And, uh, you know, there had been some McCartney death rumors a few weeks before. And our manager told us and we kind of... And, uh, and he just said, I'm going to get on a plane right now and go find out. Well, that was a weekend and he went and called and said Jim's dead and and he didn't see him it was a closed casket hence the rumors you know and Jim was a crazy guy who no one I've ever met would be more capable of faking their death than him but he also I don't want to discount he I watched him turn into an alcoholic with a disease we didn't have substance abuse clinics, so I didn't really... I knew there was an elephant in the room, but I couldn't define it. He's dead. Sorry. I'm sorry. And we are back with our Gary Patterson. The book is Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll uh, Legends... Uh, sorry, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. And just a reminder, uh, Gary will be uh, coming up here for a special live event October the 16th at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, University of Toronto. Uh, and we'll have some special Skype uh, guests, including Peggy Sugarin, the uh, the dear friend of Buddy Holly. So that is going to be a remarkable evening, and uh, 
Um, uh, Gary will be sharing, no doubt, some uh, some more inside information on Jim Morrison and and uh, and much more. Um, we were talking about uh, Jim Morrison supposedly alive and well, living somewhere. Uh, back in the early 90s, uh, there was supposedly a recording uh, made, um, and it was um, released from the Zeppelin group, which was uh, interesting because Morrison at one time tried to secure the rights to the name uh, Zeppelin Music Publishing or something. This is before, I guess, Led Zeppelin really um, came to the fore. But um, so this this song comes out, and um, um, what was it called? The Phantom, the um, it was called Phantom or something. Yeah. And um, it was it sounded a lot like Jim Morrison. What can you tell me about that recording from 1992? I think that you can go through and you can find recordings that have have become the the stuff of urban legend. I mean, it does sound like Morrison. I've heard, have you heard it? I have, I have. And what do you think? you think it sounds like Jim? Well, you know, it's like all those Elvis recordings mm-hmm. out there. There's a lot of people that do very credible uh, Elvis impersonations. Exactly. That's, that was the point I was getting to. And even the idea that the Beatles had actually gotten back together in Hollywood somewhere around... Oh, let's see, two years after the breakup, let's say around 72, and had actually put out an album. And there was a stir when the master tapes were going to be auctioned off. And it had initials like GM and GE. Of course, GM, George Martin, GE, Jeff Emmerich. And the songs on it were like People of the Third World was one of the songs. And the person who had the tape tried to sell it, auction it off for over $150,000. And when it was played, it was only a blank studio tape. And someone had put all these names on it. I mean, I've heard recordings that sound exactly like artists who passed away, like you're saying, with Elvis Presley. Ronnie McDowell in Nashville is probably the greatest Elvis Presley sound-alike voice. So when I hear something like that, it's got to be more than just a recording. And you got to have providence with it. You know, who played on the session, who arranged it, and have people come forward and do that. Right. They were, so, it was referred to as the the credits were uh, drummer X, bass player Y. <laughs> uh, but um, I think yeah. then the rumor came out that it was actually Iggy Pop that was doing the vocals, I think. Now, I've heard that Iggy Pop did do the vocals. And when he started, he, he just did a really great Jim Morrison sound. And when he performed, sometimes he would go into that. So I have heard that it was Iggy Pop. And matter of fact, I think Iggy Pop actually admitted doing it. Oh, he did, did he? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that blows that. So I think we just solved the mystery right there. (laughs) Well, there are other mysteries uh, to solve. Many, many more. Uh, We will do that when we come back. Our Gary Patterson, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, right here on The Conspiracy Show as we commemorate the anniversary of the Lizard King's death. Or is Mojo rising? We'll find out. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes, corporations got something to say? 
Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Oh, I think it's great. I think the pilgrimages to Jim Morrison's grave are, uh, are, are absolutely wonderful. Uh, um, you know, it's Jim Morrison's a living artist. You know, he's not dead. He's in the air. He's in the ether. You know, people visit his grave to pay homage to him, to leave a flower, to uh, leave a tape. When you go to Jim Morrison's grave, respect the other people around. Go crazy on Jim Morrison's grave. That's okay. You have my permission. And you have Jim's permission. Enough said. <laughs> Welcome back. Uh, and that was um, a clip we just played from uh, Ray Manzarek, the late Ray Manzarek, who we lost a couple of years ago. Of course, the, um, the great keyboardist. And it was that chance encounter on a beach in Venice, California, uh, both uh, Morrison and Manzarek attending UCLA, and um, that the collaboration was born. And then they bring in this uh, sort of a flamenco guitarist, Robbie Krieger, and um, Densmore, who played in a marching band. I think it was that's a kind of a, it was an odd assortment, wasn't it? You had you had um, Ray Manzarek, who was I mean a lot of his music seemed to be inspired by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill, and then um, you had the poet Morrison, and then you had. Um, uh, Krieger, as I mentioned, I, I believe was a flamenco guitarist, and Densmore, Densmore was a jazz drummer essentially, and he played in a marching band. What I mean, what a strange <laughs> a cadre of uh, a motley crew to come together and and and, uh, but it worked, didn't it? It did work, and the thing that Jim Morrison loved about Robbie Krieger was that Robbie could play slide guitar. And if you listen to a lot of the door songs, you hear the slide guitar part. Mm. But, but Morrison also loved Texas blues. So on the uh, L.A. Lady album, he LA brought Woman, in right. a blues player whose name was Mark Benno to actually play guitar with Robbie on it. So they weren't afraid of bringing people in the studio to embellish their sound. And no bass player. So I guess Manzarek played sort of the bass uh, notes with his what his left hand on the keyboard. Yeah. Actually, they had bass players in the studio. Oh, they did. They just yeah, they never credited them. And when they played live, Manzarek played bass with his left hand. You're right. Um, so I want to go back to the, uh, the 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 faked death rumors, and um, Morrison had numerous conversations with with um, managers and that about, you know, radically changing careers, reappearing as a suited and necktied uh, businessman. Mm -hmm. um, he, he told somebody, or he asked somebody, at the, I guess, at the, I don't know, it was Jack Holtzman or, or somebody, he said, what would happen if he were to suddenly die? How might it affect business and record sales and the press? And would people believe it? Uh, I mean, it sounds like he was really giving some thought to this. Well, you know what Jimi Hendrix said before he died? He said, it's funny how people love the dead. Once you're dead, you're made for life. And if you'll sit there and you go all the way back, who do you think the very first rock tragedy was? The very first rock tragedy? Mm -hmm. um, that's a good question. Well, I'm going to tell you. I just brought it up because a lot of people think Buddy Holly and the plane crash, but Johnny Ace. Oh, that's right. The late, great Johnny Ace, a great Paul Simon tune. Mm -hmm. And what did Johnny Ace teach the record industry? That you make millions of dollars if your artist is dead. Because people have the idea of, you know, nostalgia. 
they see a greatest hits album, the artist dies, they rush right out and buy it. So what was odd to me with that whole theory about how people love, love the dead and make money off their off their names on the recordings. I had a friend who used to work for a very major record label across the United States, which you don't see anymore. But he told me that it was odd that three days before John Lennon was murdered, all of John Lennon's records appeared in their shops to put on the shelves. Hmm. And when Lennon was killed, that every one of those albums and CDs and tapes sold completely out. And he was saying, you know, do you think the record company knew something about that? Now, for me, and I mean, I love conspiracy, and Richard, I know you do too. Mm -hmm. Just the idea that having product on hand a few days before a rock star dies, you can imagine how much money they're going to make. And Johnny Ace, who actually had two songs, you know, that you could think of that really charted. And, of course, he used the name Johnny Ace because his father was a minister and he didn't want his son playing secular music, just like Sam Cooke and the others, that when he died, the label made so much money. So what Morrison's saying is once you're dead, it's good for record sales. Right, right. So, so if he faked his death, there would be lots more to be made on the Doors catalog, and he would have tons of money. But, you know, the thing that makes me really think about this, who collected the royalties after, after Jim died? It was Pamela Corson, and Pamela Corson had all the royalties, and then she died a year later, and then both families, the Morrison family and the Corson family, received all the royalties. So all of Jim's royalties went to these two families. Now, if you had some creative accounting, you could have some, some more money go somewhere, or if the Morrison family knew that Jim was alive and they were funneling money to him, but knowing someone in the Morrison family who is over that, I can tell you that that's not true. So where did he get the money? How did he keep going? You know, he could set up some false companies, I know, and have a percentage of his royalties delivered there, but the other doors would be receiving it. And uh, so the, the monetarily thing is something you have to look at and explore, but it would be a good, it'd be a good adventure to find out where the money went. Right. Well, there was another, um, I mean, if, if he was sincere about wanting to totally drop out and reinvent himself and come back as a businessman, maybe he just said, okay, the, the heck with the royalties. I don't need them. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start out fresh. But the other th interesting thing was, again, going back to these conversations he had with um, managers and so forth, and I, I, I'm not sure who this was. It was a confidant, but they used to apparently have lengthy conversations about how the disciples you know, after the crucifixion went in and stole Jesus' body and, and uh, you know, to create this um, hoax, and they called it the Great Easter Heist and all that. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you put all these things together, and it is it is interesting. I know everybody thinks every rock star who's ever died, is, you know, faked their death. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it has been done. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the, um, uh, the great uh, Machiavelli. Machiavelli uh, uh, faked his death. And um, um, Tupac Shakur used to uh, quote Machiavelli all the time and talk about Machiavelli, and that's why people think Tupac could have pulled it off as well. But uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's great fodder for talk shows like this, though, isn't it? Well, actually, you know, if you take a look at Tupac, just spell his name backwards, and it spells kaput. So 
that answers that question. <laughs> that is dark. That is dark. Uh, <laughs> I at, know. At Mojo Sorry. Rising. Mojo Rising is an anagram as well. Uh, it, so it contains Jim Morrison's name, um, which is kind of interesting because the, the, the term Mojo is, is, um, is often used in voodoo. Mm-hmm. And now, was Morrison a practitioner? He, I mean, he certainly seemed interested in voodoo philosophy, and I think some of his songs incorporate that. What do you think? Well, I think he was into the occult as far as studying it. I don't know if he was the occult as far as Crowley goes. I think that he did have something that tied him into voodoo, and and of course, he had a Wiccan hand fest with uh, Patricia Canelli, who was who claimed to be his wife or the lizard queen. And, you know, you can look at her story. And, of course, it was pretty well showed in uh, the movie The Doors, you know, about his relationship with her. Right. She was a and, witch initiate, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they drank, supposedly they drank blood together. They did. And uh, so it just shows that he had an interest. But, you know, no one opened the coffin and no one has seen if a body is there. And he could have dropped out completely, but I think it would be awful hard for him to leave, you know, Pam, because he always kept her with him. And I know she was dead within a year, but for her to say if he was alive, he would have called me. That's a very strange statement to make, and no one here gets that alive. And I'm just thinking that he could probably cut off his whole family. I just don't know if he could cut out her. Right. Right. Well, it's possible he did show up to the funeral, uh, Claire's funeral, in disguise. Um, it could be. I remember Alan Graham uh, telling the story of he was putting on some sort of a musical uh, about um, the life of Jim Morrison. I think he was down there in, in San Diego mm-hmm. or Corona or wherever and um, thought that he caught a glimpse of uh, his brother-in-law um, sort of hanging about, I guess, in the theater just got a, a fleeting glimpse, and he walked by, and he, th- and he thought, I wonder, that could that be? <laughs> yeah. I think even Alan holds out the poss- a remote Alan, possibility. He does. Alan does. I mean, he, he doesn't close the door. The f- well, that was a pun, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but I was thinking, you know, Ray Manzarek had gone on record many times doubting that Jim was buried at Pere Lachaise. So you can imagine how shocked I was on coast to coast when I brought up the question and Ray says, Oh no, he's dead. He's buried there. And it just shocked me because he had never said that before. Hmm. I mean, my favorite story that man's Eric told was the idea that someone asked him for $1,500. They said they found Jim in the outback in Australia. He had a broken leg. If uh, Ray would send him $1,500, he would set his leg and get him home on an airliner for $1,500. <laughs> so you can imagine how many people have claimed to the surviving doors that they know where Jim is. What's the, uh, we just have a couple minutes left, the status of, the, we have the two surviving members now, John Densmore and Robbie Krieger, of course. And when Krieger and um, uh, Manzarek were performing together as the doors, John Densmore sued. Um, then they changed their name to Riders on the Storm and so forth. But there was a lot of acrimony there. Are, 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 now that Manzarek has passed away, uh, are, are Krieger and uh, Densmore, are they, are they okay again? Are they together? Or? They're not together. 
I haven't talked to Robbie in a while. I should call him and uh, see what he has to say. But I know that the last time I talked to him, he couldn't even mention the name Doors because they had some sort of legal injunction against it. So I would say that hopefully they're the last two survivors that they have some goodwill as long as Robbie doesn't perform under the Doors. I think he just performs under his own name now. But uh, Robbie Krieger is a very interesting person. And I know that John Dinsmore and Jim really didn't get along in the doors. I think that Jim really, well, not, well, Dinsmore actually resented Jim Morrison. So now it seems like Dinsmore tries to be Jim's champion about, I don't want to put his music out. I don't want to do this. And, you know, it seems rather odd, but I hope that, you know, they can get together and work out their differences because life's too short. And you've got two members of probably one of the greatest theatrical bands and as far as the sound goes no one could actually duplicate that no it would be great to hear them together again it would be it It would would be be. so hopefully there will be gary thank you so much for this always glad to do it gary patterson take a walk on the dark side coming to toronto october the 16th strange planet live events page strangeplanet.ca for more info all right that's it for me back next week thank you ian thank you albert thank you jamie in the meantime don't be afraid there's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known what you hear in the dark speak in the light what i say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops move over aphrodite i'm coming home good night
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.